Wow, you guys are in good voice this morning. Not that I would tell you if you were in bad voice, but it was pretty good. It was good to listen to you. I'm, I'm looking forward to what we're about to look at. I'm looking forward to celebrating communion with you in a few minutes. Well, let's face it, not a few minutes, but um, it'll be coming up shortly. <laughs> Just being honest. Okay. Um, I'd love to pray with you, but before I do, I, wa- I want to share an anchor verse with you that kind of frames where we're going this morning. Obviously, there's the potential of us having very dangerous attitudes. Even as followers of Christ, we can have this attitude that demands our own way no matter what, and we can find ourselves in rebellion against God. And I counter that against the most mature attitude or the most mature prayer, which is found in this passage from Matthew 26. And you'll see it yourself. You're familiar with it if you've been to church. You know this, verse 39, he went a little bit beyond them, speaking of Jesus, fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. What you're looking at is the absolute pinnacle of surrender. That's the most mature, most dangerous, but most mature prayer you can possibly have. That's an individual putting themselves in that place of, do in my life whatever you have to do to conform me to your purposes. No matter what, God, I'm totally surrendered to you. That frames where we're going this morning as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 8 and chapter 9. Before we do that, would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank You for what we will celebrate in communion and what we will declare as a witness that we're not ashamed of the gospel. But before that, Lord, we look to Your Word and we ask that You would help us with this attitude issue of wanting to be in rebellion because we are truly people who want our own way. So finding ourselves in that place of looking for Your will first is what we really desire to pay attention to. And what I recognize, God, is what we'll agree on right now in a service on a Sunday morning is pretty different from where we'll be on a Monday when we want to pursue our own will, our own desires. So I pray that this material that we're about to examine from Your Word, that You're teaching us through Your Holy Spirit, will be applied to us in such a way that it will reverberate throughout our life and that we won't quickly dismiss it. We surrender this time to You right now, asking that You would help us to shut out any distraction, but that we would pay attention to what You have to say. And we ask for that in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, Amen. So it's 1043 B.C., Samuel has been a leader of the nation for his entire life at this point. Nation of Israel is looking much brighter because Samuel has been in authority. And it looks like it's a very promising future. He's somewhere in his mid-60s, maybe late-60s at this particular stage. But as Samuel ages, familiar patterns begin to reappear again, as we saw previously among this particular nation. Now, Samuel for himself, he's made plans to groom his own sons 
to take over for Him. He's groomed His sons to become the judges over the nation of Israel. But things begin to go south and He gets called out publicly on it because Samuel's sons are much like Eli's sons. They're wicked in their behavior. Pick it up with me in verse 1, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. So despite this really godly heritage, they've got Samuel for their daddy, they turn out perverted. And we look at that and say, how does that happen? And a lot of good godly parents want to know, how does that happen? How do you have godly parents and yet children who turn out like this? Well, we don't know the particulars in Samuel's life. We, we don't know the intimate details. We don't know what, what went on in the household. But what we do know is Samuel is not like Eli. He hasn't been walking in wicked ways. He's been walking faithfully with God, but his sons do not. Now, in this particular setting, his sons live 75 miles away. And in that era, it's a long distance. It'd be like leaving here this morning, walking out our parking lot and walking to northern Grand Rapids. So it's pretty good distance. And at Samuel's age, he's not going to be doing that, so they're not seeing each other very often. They're separated. Now, whether or not Samuel should have appointed his sons as judges in the first place is not for us to decide. What we do know is they've turned aside, and maybe that came later in their life that they became perverted. We don't know, but that's what they're dealing with here. So the elders of Israel, the leaders of the nation, have to call Samuel out, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. Now here's a little perspective for you. The rise of a monarchy was fairly inevitable in this sense. They're thinking very much like the world, and the world has kings, and they have the Philistines at their doorstep, and the Philistines are well organized. They are a sophisticated military machine, and the Israelites recognize that they are in great danger as a nation. Now, they have a bigger population than the Philistines, but they're not united, and they have no permanent army, so in their mind... They have to build up an army or Israel will be destroyed. And in the ancient world, according to the way they're thinking at this time, having a king is the only possible way to achieve stability. So from a historical perspective, because all the other nations have kings, verse 5 is indicating this urgent request they're making is they want to achieve stability. And so they're saying, you need to appoint a king for us. And for them, and for you and I today, that's a really dangerous place to be because they're showing their attitude in this way. They're demanding, God, I want that thing, and I want it no matter what. I know what you've said, but this is what I want. And we as humans arrive at that place where we believe we have to have a certain thing 
in their case, a thing that's outside of God's will, and that's where it gets very dangerous. And we know that they're seeking something outside of God's will because God is their king, and yet they're demanding an earthly king. So what are they saying? They're saying they want to replace God. They want something visible in front of them. So follow the flow of this story. A whole bunch of leaders show up at Samuel's house. It literally, in the Hebrew, it says all the elders in the Scriptures. They show up at Samuel's house and they confront him with his own personal failure in his family, and they're confronting him with a failure of what they perceive to be God's form of government, which he had established earlier. And so they begin the meeting with the facts. Samuel, you're old, and your sons are screwed up, so we don't want to go your way any longer. And they have learned from the Eli episode. And the Eli episode taught them that they don't want to go back to the judgmental system of judges. Hophni and Phinehas mess things up. They don't want to repeat that. Now, on the one hand, good for them. Good for them that they're willing to speak up about their government and say, this is not going well. But on the other hand, they're violating the Torah. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in the Torah, God laid out His plan exactly how Israel was supposed to behave as a nation, and they're saying they don't want to behave that way. So God designed them and God built them for a distinct purpose that they would be separate from the other nations so the other nations could look at them and say, that's what a godly nation looks like. Here's a reminder for you from the book of Leviticus. God said this in chapter 20, you are to be holy to me for I, the Lord, Yahweh, am holy and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. You're to be different. Here's another one from Isaiah 49. I will also make you a light of the nations so that you, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So God's their king, God's their warrior, and He says, I have a distinct purpose for you that you would be a light to the nation so they would see my salvation and understand I'm here for them, but hear this very carefully because this is true of us today. They're looking for a political solution to a spiritual problem. Sound familiar? They're looking for a political solution to a spiritual problem and they're going to attempt to accomplish it through politics. They want to accomplish through politics that which can only be done through daily spiritual self-control, which makes me think of Romans 12, and I'll take you there to Romans 12 in just a moment. Notice what's going on here. This is a really big leap. It'd be one thing if they showed up at Samuel's house and said, hey, do you have anybody else on the list? Because your sons are not doing such a great job. Is there a, a, a number two choice or a number three choice? No, they've actually jumped from the judgmental, the judge system, all the way to being a king. We want a king. In other words, we want to throw out what God had landed on and what God had said would work for us. Now, Samuel is the epitome of a spokesman for God. He loves God's Word. So, of course, he's going to recoil at the very suggestion that they want to violate the Torah. 
So verse 6, it actually says, but the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel. The Hebrew language actually indicates that it was evil in Samuel's eyes. But remarkably for Samuel, he doesn't do what most people would do. Most people would rail back against them. What did he do? Finish out verse 6, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. So before responding to them, he wisely brings it back before God and says, okay, here's what's going on. Now what do we do? How should I respond to this? Now if you skip forward to verse 20. What you'll find, we're not going to do that just yet, but I'll, I'll just tell you what's coming. What their real agenda is, they really want a military power. They want a military leader because they feel threatened. Israel has suffered defeat in the past. They don't want to suffer again. But God has already proven that He's their king and He's their military leader. He's the one that has given them victory. He's already provided them all the human leadership that they need. And yes, they have suffered defeat, but it's always been when they rebelled against God. So this demand for a king is a sinful rejection of God, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for I have not rejected, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Can I just say that verse 7 is an amazing evidence of God's patience? You want to look for evidences of God's patience, long-lasting patience. You look at verses 7 in that way. He doesn't say, okay, I'm going to just wipe them out, Samuel, I'm done. I'm going to obliterate them or I'm going to condemn them. He says, no, let's, let, let's, let's move this forward. They've made this request. I hear this request. They don't really understand what's going on in this request, but I hear them. So here's my observation so far as I'm reading through this story. My observation is that these ancients, these people totally are the opposite of Jesus who would be on His face saying, not my will. I surrender. Whatever your will is, God, that's what I want done. And that's the most mature attitude you can possibly have. Do in my life whatever you need to do to accomplish your purposes, I surrender to you. And I will tell you, after walking with Jesus all these years of my life, you can actually only ever pray that way when you know that God only ever wants the best for you that God really wants the best. And so therefore, that's the, the prayer of an incredibly, the highest level, mature person who can say, I know you want the best, therefore I open myself up completely to you. What do you want for my life? As opposed to what I'm demanding for what I want. But you can only pray that way when you understand that God wants that for you. The contrast is, when we demand and when we push and when we strain against God's leash, if you will, and eventually God lets that leash go. And so what we get next are remarkable insights into what happens when God lets go of the leash. He continues on, this is God speaking in verse 8, like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they eat in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, 
You shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. This is God saying they don't really understand how ugly it's going to get. And I want you to help them understand how ugly it's going to get. So God tells Samuel, there's one thing these people are very consistent about. They are very consistent about rejecting me. This is merely the latest in a long pattern of rejections, meaning this as you're reading between the lines. This demand for a king is a political manifestation of a much deeper spiritual problem. So God says to Samuel, literal Hebrew language, warning you shall warn them in verse 9. Highest level, I want you to tell them about the consequences. Now you know that placing a permanent king in power is way more than just putting one more person in the circle of power. This is going to add many, many layers. It's the establishment of a multi-tiered bureaucratic system that will be incredibly expensive. It will require the service of thousands of individuals. And to underwrite all of this is going to demand huge amounts of financial resources because government costs money. Amen? Yeah, it does. We all know April 15th is coming, right? Okay, so you're going to see this description now of lots of taxation. I, I could have just skipped past these verses, but I thought it was very interesting to see the way he spells it out. Watch what he warns them of. Verse 10, so Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in chariots among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing, and to reap his harvest, and to make his weapons of war, and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and of your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants, your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. Here comes the taxation. And he will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his servants. And he says, ultimately, this is going to become really, really oppressive because kings are takers, and they diminish others in order to further their own interest. So there's going to be forced military service, and there's going to be government seizure of property, and there's going to be limits on your freedom, and there's going to be a tax base, and it's going to be 10%. Wouldn't you love to have a 10% tax base? But that's what they're being told, and they've not faced taxes before. And so he says, you guys are actually going to cry out about this thing, and you're going to want relief. Verse 18, then you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So here's what's stunning to me. They hear all of this in advance. And they still say, it's worth it. We want it. That's totally good. Verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. 
And I do wonder if when the phraseology of verse 20 came around, if there was this giant sigh in heaven. How else can you respond when somebody knows everything they're not supposed to do and they want to do it anyway? God has gone out before them. God has fought their battles. He's been incredibly faithful to them. So right here, you might just as easily insert the verse we read at the beginning of Judges when it said, there rose up a new generation who knew not the Lord. This is the way they're acting. So bear down with me on verse 20. Look at their rationale that we may also be like all the nations. Are we any different than that today? Not too different. The difference is they're willing to say it out loud. They're willing to articulate that they want to be like everybody else. Many of us would say we are very inclined to imitate the habits of this world. And the reason is obvious. It's appealing. The things that the world offers are really attractive. But if we are truly the church, has God not called us out to be distinct? Just waiting for the amen on that one. I heard like two of you say it. We have been called out to be distinct, to be a light, to be different than everyone else. And that requires that we have to be intentional about moving away from the temptation that we're constantly called to seemingly endlessly. So let me make it personal for you this way, give you a couple of examples. Think of it in your life this way, as this world has become more preoccupied with material things, have I, as this world has lowered its standards, let's say, in sexual behavior, have I? What does that look like in my life? Have I done those same things? When the things of the world, according to Scripture, are sought after in a, in a hard way and we chase after them, it's hard for those compromises not to affect us. It's, it's hard not to be drawn into those compromises. So when a person longs to be like the world, soon they will be thinking like the world, and thinking leads to action, and action eventually demands a new king. I want something new over me because I don't like the old system. So what's the solution? You're here on a Sunday morning or you're streaming the message from home, you're watching broadcasts maybe from work. What's the solution in this situation? Well, a maturing believer accepts this reality that I do live in a world that constantly tries to draw me into its pattern and away from God. Yet God calls me to surrender my will to His, to pursue His will. And He's the king, we're not. Do you agree with that statement? Okay, so if He's the king, that makes Him the master. He's the master, we're the servant. The servant comes to the master and says, what would you like me to do? The king never comes to the servant and says, what would you like me to do? We get it backwards all the time. We're trying to tell God what to do. 
as opposed to saying, God, how would you like to use me? So that's why I insert Romans 12 at this point. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I mentioned to you that I would bring it up. Watch it with me. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Here's the kicker, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You're looking at total surrender. This is what this is describing. It's the highest level of maturity, giving over your body and giving over your mind to accomplish God's will. That's exactly what Jesus was doing on the night that He was betrayed. Father, I wish that this cup would pass from me, if there's any way, but not my will, your will. You're talking life and death at that point, and Jesus models what total surrender looks like. Now back into the story. God lets go of the leash. He says, okay, we're going to give them what they want. He allows this demand, and we're talking about God's permissive will in this case. He's permitting them to follow their own path. And so this sets in motion the placement of a king, and this king will be far more like what they want than they have ever imagined when they said, give us a king like the other nations. Here comes verse 1 of chapter 9. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel. <laughs> I can't say all those names, so just skip with me to verse 2. He's a mighty man of valor. <laughs> Here comes verse 2. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and a handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders up, he was taller than any of the people. So Saul could be on the cover of GQ, right? He's a male model, perfect. He, he's just chiseled in his looks, both his physical build and in his face to the degree that they call him out and say, there's nobody more handsome than this guy in the entire nation. But did you notice that he's from the tribe of Benjamin? The king of Israel, the future king will come from the line of Judah. So we've got a guy who's from the line of Benjamin, and what you know about the Benjamites is only very familiar to you if you were here during Judges 19, when we saw a young lady shoved out the door by her husband and insulted all night long that happened in the town of Gibeah, which is of the tribe of Benjamin, and that was the Benjamites that did that, and that is his legacy. He's one of those who came down from the tribe of Benjamin. So he not only stands head and shoulders above everybody else, he is a specimen. His physical build is perfect, his appearance is great, and he's from a prestigious family. His dad is a man of valor. The, the verb in verse 2, he's, he's a tobe, which means there's nobody of his equal in the nation. So this guy is superior, so check this, church. God picks the one guy in the entire nation who is nearest to their ideal of what a king should be. In regal stature, he's got the posture, he's got the potential of being every inch a king, 
And he's certainly one of the more complex individuals, as you'll find out going throughout Scripture. As he gets older, this guy becomes suspicious of everyone. He's vicious. He's disobedient to God, out of control in his behavior. He's moody. He's impulsive. Yet as a young man, he's very kind. He's generous with people. He's gracious to people that he encounters. He's courageous. He's very much in control of his life, and he's willing to obey God. So just a summary of his life at this point, Saul is materially from a well-to-do family, and he's physically impressive. He's able to inspire people. He's skillful in battle. He's gracious in victory. He would make for a great politician. Unfortunately. He is incompetent in spiritual matters, and it becomes painfully evident very soon. Go with me to verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, remember Kish is his father, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And when you think of donkeys, you, you think of farm animals, but that's not what they're thinking of. They're thinking of animals that are used for royalty. People of great wealth and people of nobility and royalty ride donkeys, and apparently they've got a herd of donkeys. And so Saul's got a responsibility now because his dad is going to send him out on an expedition to find this missing livestock. Step back and ask yourself this question, who caused those donkeys to go missing? And what is this actually leading to? God is going to use these straying donkeys to bring Saul and Samuel into contact with each other. Now, they're going to go on this three-day search. They're looking for these lost donkeys. They crisscross all of the borderlands. They can't find them. They're frustrated. And after three days, Saul and his servant enter a land known as Zuph, Z-U-P-H, which just happens to be the region of a guy by the name of Samuel. And they end up in Samuel's backyard. Could that have happened by chance? Or is God up to something here? Verse 5. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, "'Come and let us return, or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and will become anxious for us.' He," now this is the servant speaking at this point, "'He said to him, "'Behold, now there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out.'" Now, that's very telling. The word na'ar is used there, which indicates that this servant is a farmhand, a a young man, probably in the range of 14 to 16 years of age, somewhere in that adolescent years. So he's there as a servant to come alongside Saul, and he has to be the one to tell Saul about Samuel. And I say that for this reason. Samuel is the most famous man in the entire nation. He's the most revered since the days of Moses, and Saul doesn't know about him, which tells you he's not spiritually dialed in. Now, there's some terminology that's going to be used here. The word seer is used repeatedly, as you'll see in just a moment. Uh, Initially, which will skip over a few verses, initially what they begin debating about is if they should even go see the seer because they don't have any money. And Saul says, I'm broke. I've spent all my money. The farmhand says, well, I've got some silver in my pocket. I got a quarter of a shekel. It's about three grams of silver. And he says, I can give that to him. So there's a little back and forth about money and whether protocol is right. And eventually they agree to go see Samuel. Verse 10, 
Then Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Now, seer and man of God are interchangeable. They're all talking about a prophet, and that's Samuel, obviously. Now, here's the forerunners of the indications of trouble, if you've been paying attention. Saul has a profound ignorance of Samuel. Even the farmhand knows about Samuel, but Saul doesn't. And did you notice that Saul's not asking for God's help? It's the farmhand that has to point out to him, this is a spiritual issue. We could go see the prophet. Maybe he can tell us what to do. And then Saul, he assumes that the prophet has to be bought, that you've got to have some money in order to get some spiritual insight. Keep going with me, verse 11. As they went up the slope to the city, they found young women going out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? They answered them and said, He is. See, He is ahead of you. Hurry now, for He has come into the city today. Verse 14, so they went up to the city. As they came into the city, behold, Samuel was coming out toward them to go up to the high place. So it's early evening. The girls are coming out to draw water for that evening meal and for the next day for breakfast so they have water in the house. And these girls know Samuel. Everybody knows who Samuel is. And as a distinguished judge who travels around the nation to bring judgment, especially in his region, Samuel is in his hometown only occasionally, not very often. So everyone's waiting for his arrival. He's such a revered person. They won't begin the sacrifice at the high place until he gets there. And in this town, they know that this special man is available, and so they're waiting for him to come bless this ritual. In verse 15, you get a little background. It's kind of like a parenthesis. It's like God giving you an insight into what's going on behind the scenes. Verse 15, now a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, about this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him. Pay close attention to these next two words, anoint him to be prince over my people, Israel. Now, four times you're going to see God say, my people, over my people Israel, and He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Now, Saul's not seeking to be king. He's just a dude out looking for lost donkeys. He doesn't know, he's not dialed in that even the leaders of the nation are looking for someone to be king. But pay attention to the story, God selects him to be leader. And the reason I wanted you to notice the word leader or prince is because when God speaks to Samuel, he doesn't say, I want you to anoint him to be king. The king is supposed to come from the line of Judah. So God says, I want you to anoint him to be prince, which means leader, military leader in this context. I want you to mashak him, make him anointed to lead my people, but he doesn't call him a king, which tells you and I, if you're reading between the lines, there's something deeper going on here, deeper than any human motive that's driving this encounter. And the deeper motive that's driving this undercurrent 
is God's will. God wills to accomplish His purposes. So He says, I want you to mashok. Can look at the Hebrew word on the screen, mashok is very familiar to you if you're thinking in the Hebrew language of the word Messiah, Mashiach. Mashiach is the root word for Mashiach. So Jesus, the Messiah, the Mashiach, is anointed because He's a part to do God's specific purpose. The same word, Mashiach, is being used here of Saul. And it's the first time in the history of the Bible that anyone other than a priest is to be anointed or mashocked. Now, as I said, Samuel is the most famous person and the most famous spiritual leader since Moses. But when Saul sees him, he's completely clueless, verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, please tell me where the seer's house is. That's absolutely striking. He's looking the guy in the eye. And he doesn't know that he's looking the guy in the eye. And Samuel is this guy who is filled with insight. He knows all about this young donkey chaser. He knows exactly where the donkeys are at. So he's got this obscure young man in front of him, and he knows exactly who he is. But Saul is the polar opposite. He's looking Samuel in the face and says, can you tell me where Samuel is? You're going to find as you work through this story that spiritual blindness is Saul's middle name. He thinks this about his son, spiritually, blindly. He thinks Jonathan is out to get him. He thinks that about the future King David, that David is out to kill him. He thinks that about other sons of his own. That's just his middle name. He doesn't have spiritual insight. But. If the people truly want a king like all the other nations, they have one. He's got the pedigree. He's good-looking. He's physically fit. He's mentally fit. He's from a warrior family. He's the whole package. But it's all external. He does not have a commitment to God. Verse 19, Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and in the morning I will let you go, and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's household? That last statement had to leave him with major confusion. What? You're telling me I'm the desire of the nation? Do you know who I am? The greatest prophet in the nation has just said, you're the sum total of what the nation is after. Now, did you notice that before Saul can, or before Saul can even mention the lost donkey, Samuel already knows about them, tells them that they've been found? So Saul has to be sensing something is afoot. He's not stupid. And this renowned individual has just identified him, and he's told him all about his lost livestock, and now he's been invited to this prestigious banquet and being told he's the hope of the nation. Now, Saul's under no illusions. He knows his background. Watch with me. Verse 21, Saul replied, am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me this way? Now, Saul's response reveals that he's mentally sharp. 
He can put two and two together. He knows exactly what Samuel is describing here. And he's just saying, why would the nation want me? Now, we're going to fast forward through the meal and all the details of it. You can read it later yourself. But the, the meal is over and its function as like a, a coronation banquet, if you will. All the highly connected people are present at the meal. Saul is treated like royalty. He's given a rack of lamb in front of him. And then Samuel reveals the purpose of even honoring Saul. Then comes verse 25. When they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. And that's just a really interesting detail that they threw in about Middle Eastern custom. Commonly after a meal, individuals would go to the roof of a house, nice evening breeze blowing through. Some individuals who were wealthy enough, they would build bedrooms on the roof of the houses. And if you were an invited guest, you could sleep in those bedrooms and enjoy the evening breeze in the Middle East. Wonderful, wonderful place to be. And that's exactly what happens. Saul gets to spend the night there. And the next morning, this happens, verse 26. And they rose early, and at daybreak Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up, that I may send you away. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And they were going down to the edge of the city. Samuel said to Saul, say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you remain standing now that I may proclaim the word of God to you. So Samuel is making sure that this first anointing is going to be very private and not even the servant will know what's unfolding here. Verse 1 of chapter 10, then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him and said, has not Yahweh mashocked you, a ruler over his inheritance? And we're going to intentionally leave it hanging there until next time. You can read about it later yourself, obviously. It, we'll, we'll let that be a holding place for us next time. Here's why I want you to notice before you take communion. God has heard His people. He's allowed their will to play out. His permissive will is allowing this, but ultimately He's going to accomplish His perfect will in this nation and in their lives. It is clear that no human planned that Samuel and Saul would ever meet. They could easily have lived out their entire life and never have come in contact with each other. But God allows and He overrules by allowing these donkeys to get lost in the first place, and then He reveals directly to Samuel what His plans are. Now I am sure that Samuel had really high hopes that Saul was going to be the bright spot of the future, that this was going to be the guy. Like why else would God choose him? Why would God choose this guy if He wasn't going to give them a bright future? God allows him, Saul, in order to demonstrate that God's ways are always best first. I hope you agree with that. Not God's ways last when everything else doesn't work out, but God's ways first. If you know the story, you know Saul is going to end up as a disaster. He will be anything but a godly king. The true king 
The king who is truly of God is the one who seeks God's will foremost to the degree that that king would even go to the cross to die for your sins. Matthew 26, verse 39, he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And that's such a dangerous place to be. It is the most mature place you will find yourself when you say, God, I want you to do in my life whatever you have to do to accomplish your purposes. I surrender everything to you. And you personally can actually measure where you're at in your willingness to let God be your king by asking yourself this question. Can you right now say before God, do whatever you need to do in my life, anything, God? I open myself up. Do whatever you need to do in my life. New Hope Church, I am so grateful that that's actually what Jesus modeled for us, that the Lord Jesus sought the Father's will, and He didn't walk away from the cross, but He embraced the cup, and He took on your sin, He took on my sin, He took on everyone's sin that if we would believe in Him, that we might be forgiven of our sin, specifically forgiven of our rebellion for constantly wanting our way and not God's way. See, we can all identify with these ancient people. We know what it is to demand our own way and want it over God's. Gratefully, we have a God who's willing to teach us what rebellion looks like and what the end result of it is. He's also willing to forgive us, and He is faithful and just to cleanse us from our sin, from all unrighteousness, amen? That's what He does, praise God, and He can do that because of the cross of Jesus Christ. So if you're new to New Hope, what we typically do at this point is we read from 1 Corinthians 11, just a paragraph of the instructions of what you're about to do. You're going to pick up the elements, the cup and the bread, to witness if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're witnessing at this point. I am not ashamed of that. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul wrote for us in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which He was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because he said he's coming again, right? So you're proclaiming it. Then we get this warning, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he has to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This time right now is for you before you come and pick up the elements to examine yourself 
Ask yourself that question, God, have I ever come to that place where I've surrendered to you, where I've put my desire aside and I'm chasing after your desire? I invite you to consider that right now as you deal with the things in your life before you pick up the elements. Remember there's tables in the atrium in the back and you can go to any of the tables here in the front. Take this time right now and talk to your Father in heaven.